Welcome to My Dog Ate My Book Report, a podcast where two weirdo 30-somethings take turns introducing each other to a formative book from childhood the other has never read. I'm Ren, and despite myself, I am on Team Gahome Gnome. I'm Brandon, and I, I guess I also am. Really? Well, they're Faraday. Well, that's true, but I, I took Team Gahome Gnome because I figured I was leaving you free to be on the obvious correct team, which is Team Dragon. I didn't know Dragon was a team, but but yes. If Dragon's a team, that's the team I'm on. It's the obvious right choice. It is. He made a very good pitch for why he's mean to the humans. Yeah. Because they started it, and I believe him. I have... I have notes. <laughs> Today we are obviously going over one of my picks, which is, I think this is our first foray into any of the triad of fantasy author Terry's, uh, which is a Terry Brooks book, but probably not the one most people think of. Wait, who's the third, who's the third Terry? Terry Brooks, Terry Pratchett, who's the last one? Good kind. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't read any of that books either. <laughs> well, we read Magic Kingdom for Sale, colon, sold. Which is, oh gosh, it is, I had a time trying to write the, the synopses here, so. So hear me out on this here synopses, it's not written particularly well, but I, I struggled. This book, uh tells the story of a depressed Chicago lawyer in the 1980s named Ben Holiday, which I've always thought was a really great name. He is in the middle of a life crisis, having just lost his wife to a sudden accident. He's disillusioned with his chosen profession. And uh, he comes across an advertisement for a magical kingdom in what I assume is Terry Brooks Land version of like the Sears holiday catalog. Uh, $1 million and a weird hike in the Virginia woods later. I'm doing finger guns here over in Brandon's direction because shout out to Virginia. And um, Ben Holiday finds himself indeed king of a magical world. Albeit it is a failing one that is beset by demons, dragons, and witch. I think other stuff too. I forget. The rest of this book depicts his attempts to fix the kingdom's problems acquiring an extremely ragtag group of court staff along the way, such as Questor, the court wizard, who can seem to only summon flowers when he needs to summon way more important things, Abernathy, who is amazing, uh, who is the court scribe who was turned into a Wheaton Terrier by Questor, who sucks at magic. But at least it wasn't flowers. <laughs> That's true. Two kobolds who have the best names. Oh no, my brain. Parsnip? Mm-hmm. Oh, no. No, the other one's name obviously isn't as good, apparently. Bunyan, 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 Bunyan. Parsnip and Bunyan. Two gnomes. Who we'll get into. And a tree girl named Willow. Who. I feel like better names could have been chosen, but, you know, it's fine. But that's. She, she literally becomes a willow tree. Yeah, but it's not like she's, like, the only willow tree in the world. We don't know that. We do know that. Maybe in maybe in Landover there's only one, and it's her. N no, because Ben says at a certain point when she turns into a tree, like, that there, there's other willow trees around her. I made that. Oh, okay. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. I, I... Anyway, <laughs> like with all, you know, vintage fantasy novels, there are some content warnings. Uh, it's not as egregious as some, uh, but there, you know, there is the sort of generic fantasy trope, veiled fantasy racism stuff. It's, 
it's hard to say. I think it's mostly mostly in the direction of the gnomes who I feel like were, I don't know, just like weirdly coded in a problematic way. But I really had a hard time putting my finger on it. But also the trolls, I feel like, were, were slightly coded because uh, they were all depicted as like dark skinned and savage. And that that seemed not great. But, you know. There are a few scenes where uh, said gnomes uh, do engage in eating of small pets. So this does not pass the does the dog die test per se. Yeah. And there are a few mentions of suicidal ideation, you know, just in the perspective of Ben, who, you know, does this whole thing because of his depression. So I will also add there are instances of not strictly mind control but magical loss of agency yes magical loss of agency you are you're absolutely correct which is which is not leverage to you know some of where that can go but the notion itself sometimes is uncomfortable for people yeah no you're you're absolutely you're absolutely correct there so yeah other than that which was all pretty small I feel like, in general, this is actually a fairly gentle, older, you know, vintage fantasy novel to pick up. In any event, uh, this was my pick, and I cannot remember, honestly, when I read this book. I think I was a teenager. I think that this was definitely sort of after I'd hit a lot of the other sort of fantasy mainstays i had already read Dragonlance and stuff like that at this point and i know that i read this when a lot of the sequels were coming out because this was this was a, a favorite in my household this was one of my mother's if not my mother's favorite book series and so when all the sequels were coming out in the mid to late 90s you know they were you know the moment they hit the book stand in the house. So I obviously didn't get to read them first because mom read them first. But, you know, I had to read them to see what all the fuss was about. So I'm going to guess that I was probably 14, 15 when I read these for the most part, which uh, I did read the first six books. As a result, as I was reading this again, which I didn't read any of them since then, I like things would start to happen in the book and I'd be like, oh, is this the part when this happens? But it never did. And I would realize, oh, that's in one of the sequels. So all six of these books really just mushed all together into really scattered memories. And as I read this, I realized how little of this book I actually remembered. <laughs> so it's kind of kind of fun going back. Yeah. But... In terms of, you know, how I felt about it when I was reading it the first time, I remembered being not very impressed by Terry Brooks's other fantasy series, which we'll get into, but being told that this had a more interesting angle. So, which which is true. You know, I I only recently learned the term isekai which i should have googled to get the exact definition but what i've been able to glean from just cultural osmosis is that it's sort of when somebody from a modern era gets transported into a magical world would you say that's accurate yeah um yeah isekai in particular it tends to be what the genre is called in like anime and manga and it's been having like that genre has been proliferating a ton in the last 10 to 15 years in particular yeah i see advertisements for it all over instagram yeah there, there's a ton of them. but like with such intense titles i i don't know what happened in anime manga lately but the titles are all like half a paragraph long <laughs> I don't remember who said this, so it may have been... My guess is actually probably Leah. But um, someone in my presence at some point said that the reason the titles are like that is that they're often adaptations of 
light novels that are just like super numerous and kind of just need to grab you with a descriptive title. What is a, a light novel? Um, broadly, a novel form which is generally for like tweens and teens in in Japan. So okay, it, it's kind of. I'm sure that there's probably nuances that differentiate it from like Western YA lit, I have to imagine. But yeah, so they're. Well, Western YA definitely took every single title that is like the blank of blank and blank. Yeah. So there were no more of those to give to Japan. Yeah, so Japan had to go with. Yeah, I was a blank in my other life. And then I blank blanked in a blank and now i'm blank yes before this uh before this era we might have called this a portal fantasy oh now we're thinking in portals yeah <laughs> i'm like punchy today i feel like i should preface all of this it's not really a preface because we're like 15 minutes into the recording but there's a hurricane happening right now outside yeah I feel like it's made me slightly weird today. It seems fine. So. All of that to say that this is almost certainly the first thing that could be vaguely categorized as like an isekai slash portal fantasy that I had read. Mm-hmm. Possibly. Yeah. Hard to say, but. Depends. I mean. Peter Pan's a portal fantasy. Alice in Wonderland's a portal fantasy. I haven't read either of those things, so it still can count, I guess. You're right. Wizard of Oz is a portal fantasy. Narnia is a portal fantasy. Narnia was probably the first portal fantasy I read, I have to imagine. I'm trying to think if there's anything before that. I don't think there was. Well, I know that when I picked this up, I was already starting to get a little tired of fantasy. Mm -hmm. And I think what drew me to this was that it, you know, it had other stuff going on. You know, the perspective of the main character was one of a modern person trying to come to terms with all of this stuff from a modern person perspective. And that, that was interesting to me. I do feel like, I would have wrote such, I I would have, I would have liked some more of the sort of things that most people I think would probably find too boring for this. Like, I desperately want to know what a modern person thinks about, like, the bathroom facilities in this place mm. and whether or not he's got a toothbrush. He does talk about the baths. The baths sound great. So yeah. so I know that hygiene is probably pretty decent. But I'm I'm just always really interested in such in the in things like this about what it's like to make the transition from modern world to this sort of situation. Like do you go to bed really early because you don't have electric lights? You know, I just I just want to know. And they don't really touch on that sort of thing. Yeah. But the yeah. potential was there to talk about such things, and that that grabbed me. I wanted to find something interesting in this book. <laughs> oh, dear. I think that maybe before we before we get into any of our... What sounds like it's probably going to be maybe a gripe on Brandon's end and just nitpicks on mine. I do have a new like little brief segue time. So, you know, we've been working on this podcast almost two years now, and I thought maybe it was time to get some more listener interaction in on our episodes. So going forward, if folks are so inclined, we have a Patreon and if you join the Patreon, that gives you access to all of the places where we are discussing the books that we are currently reading that we have not recorded yet. So that you all, if you have thoughts on these books, can give us those thoughts and ask us questions and things that we will be sure 
to answer in the actual recording of the episodes because um, I just thought it would be fun to get more input from other people and what they think about the books that we are currently reading. I... I have a lot of things that I would have done differently to improve upon this this uh, this concept. Mm-hmm. Although I will give it that you know, this was written in the eighties. I have a I have several decades of other books that I've read since then that color my opinion. And probably for the eighties, this was pretty innovative. See. I thought about that a little bit as I was going. I was like, do I find this a disappointing example of this genre because I'm coming to it decades too late? Or would this have been a disappointing example of this genre at the time? And I'm inclined to say it probably is the latter. Again, just just because I can think of a lot of other portal fantasies that don't necessarily do things better than this, but certainly do things before this, right? Uh, like, in many ways, I think that, like, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe interacts more with the notion of characters from outside a fantasy world going to a fantasy world than this book does, mm. as an example. Yeah, I, I do feel... Okay, so I'm just going to give, give... I'm just going to, like, spitball out my sort of sketchy notes, and we'll go from there. I, I know that there's, like, yeah. no chance in hell that terry brooks is ever gonna actually like listen to this episode and be upset with us for picking apart this book but the biggest point that i have i think is that there's so many tropes and i don't know if they're tropes because they were already overused at this point but if i never have to read or see another hapless dude comes across a naked girl bathing in a pond again for the rest of my life it'll be too soon yeah and and sort of pivoting off of that exact thing there are not enough female characters and i know that that was a thought that i had when i read it as a teenager Mm -hmm. there not being enough female characters is is a constant terry brooks problem terry brooks write more and better lady characters please thank you uh, I think either Quester or Abernathy could have made excellent female characters. They didn't need to be dudes. And I think that either one of them might have actually been improved if they were women. Just because I think that would have been an interesting subversion of the, of both of the tropes that they are. Yeah. But also, I know that Willow, the only... Uh, good female character because the the only other female character at all is the bad witch nightshade but i know that willow was my mother's favorite character i know this because she drew willow she she drew fan art of willow and i remember feeling so slightly judgy of my mom for this just being like why would you like willow so much she's not interesting like willow's entire characterization is I'm a girl that can turn into a tree and I am magically fated to fall in love with this king man. Immediately will follow him into the ends of the earth forever. I have no personality other than I love you right now, immediate. Also, I was naked when you first met me. And I just, I just wish she had a personality. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, my my biggest gripe was definitely just, just didn't, just, Please, Terry Brooks. Why? Why do you do this to women? Other than that, I my second biggest note was that I just wish there had been more logistical stuff. I get very, very bored of magical solutions to things. And I went into this thinking, oh yeah, modern guy goes into this failing kingdom. There's going to be chapters upon chapters of him having to deal with the logistical problems of this kingdom. And, you know, dealing with them with his modern day take on things like maybe he brings some like new interesting tech to the world and stuff like that. But no, every problem that he encounters, it all just like snowballs and spirals and keeps hitting across like more and more things of which the only solution is magical solutions. 
and I get so bored of that. Yeah. There was a there was a chapter where he went back to the castle and he was like, "All right, we're going to like do learning about this land montage learning scene." And I was so excited for that. I was like, "This is this is it. This is great. This is where things are going to go." Awesome. And then it turned back into needing magical solutions for things, but yeah, just now like from that point on instead of him encountering a problem and then he looks over and asks Quester what the solution is. From that point on, he encounters problems and then just like in in, you know, internal narration, we're told that he knows what the answer is because he read about it. We haven't heard about it before, but like... Yeah, he just spent that chapter like reading the monster's manual for Landover. Yeah. And that kind of gets at I have I have a lot of notes. I didn't take very many notes because I have so many notes. <laughs> um, All right. Well, I've done a lot of talking, so I'm going to let you. I'm like going to let you go at it. But I do want to say I did like this book. Mm-hmm. I don't know that you did, but I did. I don't know if I did. It either. brought <laughs> it brought me back to some good nostalgia and it made me remember some of the things that I did genuinely really like about the sequels. And I do think yeah. some of the sequels fix some of my problems. But I'm going to let you go now. Because I just, I just wanted to start off with a positive. I've got, yeah. We're going we're gonna to need a, a, what you call it, sandwich. Where, like, there's a good thing, and then a lot of toppings in the middle, and then another good thing. I don't know what the other what that other good thing is yet, but like it's somewhere in there, I guess. I guess my two biggest like just general stylistic gripes kind of play off of some of what what you're saying. A, um, this book more than most books that I've I can't think of a book that I've read that has this problem to the degree this book does. Does so much telling instead of showing. So much telling instead of showing. It's a very inside Ben Holiday's head book. Yeah. And, and even even when it's not I mean, it always is, but even when like the figuring out a solution part isn't in his head, it still largely amounts to Quester telling him something. Mm, right. That's true. So there's this there's these layers where like, yes, there's a lot of the book that is just literally peep like Ben's internal narration essentially telling us things. It's not a first. It's not written in first person, but we're always in his head. It's you know limited omniscient. So there's a lot of points in the book where it is just kind of like Terry Brooks saying, "So Ben read about the Crag Trolls before, and he knows this." And the parts that aren't that, Quester's just telling us things in dialogue. So it's still the same, and and sometimes it takes a really long time to get those answers. Like the the first few chapters of him being in Landover and it takes a few chapters to get there so this is like the third fourth fifth chapter I think when we're not really sure what the whole deal is like why is this thing in a catalog like how did all of this work there's a bunch of times when Ben is like okay Quester tell me everything about the catalog thing like what why is everything this way and then Quester says like one new fact and then they end the conversation. And then a few pages later, Ben is like, okay, Quester, you were holding out on me last time. Tell me everything. And Quester tells him one new fact. <laughs> and then they forget about it and they move on. And then he does it again. I think there's literally at least three times in those first several chapters where there's essentially a, a moment when Ben is like, Quester, there is something I don't know and you need to tell me. And it's not even, it doesn't even feel like Quester is hiding those facts. There are a couple that he clearly doesn't want to say immediately. But like, it feels less like Quester is intentionally concealing these facts or or like trying to drip feed them than that, you know, the chapter just hit the word count that Terry Brooks wanted it to be before he got to the rest of them. So something happened and they went to bed or whatever. Which relatedly... This book gives me a lot of vibes of, like, written to the word count. Mm. I do not know if that was actually the case, certainly. But I feel like some parts of this are so sort of just 
tread water so much. Like, it takes us so long to get to Landover, for example. And it's not because there needs to be a lot of setup for getting to Landover, to getting into Landover in the first place. It just feels like the book takes a long time to kind of rehash the handful of factors that are playing in Ben's mind, building up to buying the Magic Kingdom, right? And even then, it's still, like, telling, not showing. We're told by his buddy Miles that Ben is, like, this really awesome lawyer, and he takes on, like, big corporations that are corrupt kind of stuff. Like, he's one of those lawyers that, like, is in it for the little guy and doesn't give up. We never see him in court. That's true. That's true. People just tell us he's a great, awesome lawyer. And But we get that little bit rehashed and the notion of, like, him having the money, but, like, what if it's a scam? And then eventually we get to Landover. So it just sort of feels like, to me, there were sections that I wouldn't be super surprised if the book had to be a certain length, a book per a, a contract or whatever. Some of that I also started to pick up on. I didn't, I didn't check beforehand to see if this was part of a series. But by about the halfway point, I was pretty positive. I would have bet money it was part of a series because it felt like there were so many things that were setups for things that this book was not going to explore, but that would almost certainly make more interesting adventures in later books. Well, we'll get into that, but I don't think from what I've read and the interviews of his that I've watched about this that it was Mm -hmm. intended to be a series. But because Terry Brooks is a series author, I think it just naturally turned into one. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not that this one ends on a, like, cliffhanger or anything. If this had been a standalone book, it wouldn't have, like, been incomplete, I guess. It just feels like there's a lot of threads that were, that had potential for more things. that I imagine the, the sequels probably pick up somehow or other like for example does well does the series ever have a trial of some kind i don't remember but i don't think so ack here's my i was gonna say like fan sequel but i don't think that would be the right term here's my here's my sequel for this book (laughs) then because i thought about i thought about this when i got to this part of the book, I was like, this book is, does not have enough left for this to be at all going in this direction. But there were glimmers of things that I was like, wait, maybe this is setting up for a sequel that goes in this direction. So, you know, Ben's whole thing in this book is that he, he wanders around trying to get these various factions in Landover to pledge to him as king because there hasn't been a king, etc. Oh, and that I, I'll come back to that. <laughs> Because that there's there's actually not a gripe there. There's a thought there that I that might might have bearing on some of the background information. I'd be curious to see if it if it vibes with anything you know. Okay. But the nobles, just like the human nobles of Landover, are not interested in having a new king, of course, because they've been able to just kind of like run stuff. So they set Ben. After some finagling. That that section actually was probably my favorite part of the book, honestly. They they set Ben the task of if if he can deal with the dragon, Strabo, who, as dragons often do, sometimes eat their livestock and kill people and stuff. If he can deal with Strabo, they'll pledge to him. And they do this because dealing with Strabo is like, to them anyway, a functional impossibility. Mm-hmm. And it does take us a long time to build to where Ben actually does confront Strabo. He does a lot of other things before that that aren't strictly related. But when he does finally meet Strabo near the end of the book, he and Strabo have a conversation. He didn't know that Strabo was a talking dragon. As you said earlier, uh, Strabo has good reasons for being the way that he is Mm -hmm. and, and stuff like that. But he also doesn't contest that he behaves the way that the nobles said that he does and i was like oh my god put this put this dragon on trial man this would be good (laughs) i don't know how you convince him to to like put up with it but like 
it had the makings of of that kind of good courtroom drama where like a it literally admits to crimes not that he thinks they're crimes but you know literally admits to the bad things he's accused of but also b has good reasons or at least defensible reasons and it's like you know what ben if you are this hotshot freaking lawyer ruling this freaking kingdom and you want to instill a good a good system of laws or something this could go somewhere right yeah i think i think a lot could have been made with that i kept waiting for the idea that he's a lawyer to matter and and it and it doesn't i would argue it doesn't matter in this book even if there isn't a trial in any of the sequels i would like to think that at some point it matters a little more that he's a lawyer well, if you don't mind me dipping into, and we can come back to all of your notes, but if you don't mind me dipping into the yeah. background knowledge, I feel like it segues very nicely here. Sure. I'm very surprised and totally with you that it could have and should have had more lawyer stuff because Terry Brooks was a trial lawyer. Okay. Before he switched over to writing fantasy novels. He has the background knowledge. He should have put more stuff in there. And he did not. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, wait, is this, is this like self-insert Isekai? Yes. <laughs> okay. I don't know if that makes me feel better or worse. So, so yeah, let's back up a little bit. So this book was written in 1986 by, as we said, Terry Brooks, who's one of the trio of fantasy author Terry's. Yeah. This is book one. The, uh, t- Terry Triad is what we call it in the biz. Yes. So this is book one of the Landover series. There are six total books. I only read the first five because the final mm. one was released in 2009, and I had no idea there was a sixth one. So I didn't read that one. I have no idea what it's about, but I do know that it's about Ben's kid, who he eventually has. Mm-hmm. Uh, Terry Brooks himself, who was born in 1944 in Sterling, Illinois, which I think is really cute, because his castle in Landover is called Sterling Silver. Yeah. Cute. Yeah. See? Cute. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he's from Illinois. He's a trial lawyer, trial lawyer in Chicago. Like some people we might know. He did eventually switch careers and become an author. His first book was The Sword of Shannara in 1977. Mm-hmm. And he wrote that first trilogy before he started on the Landover books. Although actually, I, I have a link which I'm going to include in the show notes to an interview with Terry Brooks on YouTube where he talks about him segueing from Shannara to the Landover books. And that interview Excuse that me? interview link is where I realized that it's Shannara, not Shannara, which is how I've uh, always said it, how no, everyone has me, always Terry said Brooks. it, and how it's yeah, said in it's the Shannara. TV series. <laughs> but he calls Literally it... Literally no one has called it Shannara. Terry Brooks calls it Shannara, so that's what it is. <laughs> I bounced off of the sort of Shannara series pretty quickly because I found it to be just, at least the first book, a flagrant ripoff of Tolkien. However, yeah. I did also watch a TED talk he did called um, Why I Write About Elves, which is actually a really interesting little TED talk. It's like 14 minutes. I'll blink it as well. It was pretty fun. Uh, He says in it, most people think that my literary influence is Tolkien, but I actually didn't read any Tolkien until college. My biggest literary influence is Faulkner. And I just kind of like hit pause in the video and I was like, what the fuck? No, I don't understand. I could have swore like everyone else that you were just a big tolkien nerd i mean that happens sometimes you know yeah especially with like you know tolkien didn't invent elves anyway right i know i know even if a lot of pop culture elves are essentially derived from tolkien rather than the source tolkien's deriving them from but yeah anyway so his ted talk is really interesting he talks about you know why he writes what he writes and that you know, if you if you look at it any deeper than it just being elves and dragons, what he's writing about is global warming largely and religious strife. He quotes 
That's why I write about elves, because I find the answers to life's mysteries in that fashion. And I thought that was kind of neat. Because when I was reading this book, I was picking up on a lot of sort of environmentalist themes. And I wasn't sure if that was just like the 90s kid who watched a lot of Captain Planet in me. But E.R. Wright says there are environmentalist themes in this book. And he's trying to, you know, explore them in a way, like just separating himself from the real world and exploring those themes in a different area to see, you know, what he thinks about them. And that's, I mean, I think a lot of people do that. I think that's pretty honest. Uh, so the Landover and Shannara books were all considered quite successful. And he also has a tidy little career of doing book adaptations of movies, such as he did a book novelization of Hook and uh, The Phantom Menace, which I actually do remember reading, <laughs> oddly enough. And all told, he's written over 50 books the vast majority of which were in the Shannara series. I'm never going to get used to that. Yeah. After this recording, Me I will either. probably go back to calling it Shannara. They have been trying to make this a movie since the 1980s. Uh, the closest seems to have been in 2012, where Terry Brooks made an announcement about it becoming a movie. Like It was like, Landover is coming to a screen near you. But it never even never seemed to come into fruition. And then there was a, a Reddit AMA in 2018 where he basically kind of, I feel like, makes a little bit of a threat where he's like, I have another Landover book outlined, but, and I quote, any final plans to write and publish the final book are dependent on the release of a Landover movie. So I feel like he's holding this last book over uh, the people that currently have the rights which is uh, Warner Brothers, to make this, this damn movie. And then he'll put out another Landover book, which I found delightful. I, through researching all of this stuff, I find Terry Brooks to be just like a much more interesting, funny, and delightful person than I ever would have imagined with how disappointed I've often been with his books themselves. Yeah, you know, it turns out that sometimes you can think an author seems like a rad person and then not like their work. So yeah, I think that Terry Brooks is a neat guy exploring some neat themes. I wish he'd put more lawyer stuff in his books because he knows it. Yeah, yeah. I, w I was just like generally surprised how little Ben being from another world mattered. Yeah. I... I, I've been thinking about it, and I don't think I can think of a time where something in this book occurred that would necessitate Ben having been from another world, much less specifically, you know, the real world, rather than just being uh, from another land or something and ignorant of Landover, right? Like, I think the book would be largely unchanged if you were like, uh, Ben is actually a random guy from some far off land and one day he learns that actually by some twist of of bloodline he's actually the only remaining heir to the throne of this place halfway across the world that he's never heard of you know yeah so much more could have been done with the you know just the dichotomy of landover versus the real world i yeah i was really excited when the boxing gloves came out Oh, yeah. And yeah, I thought that was going to be something, too. Side note, as soon as that happened, I was like, oh, shit. Is this why I've had a lifelong fixation with learning how to box? Because I never really watched boxing. I just had this concept in my mind of, like, it'd be really cool to learn how to box. Yeah. And I, I am currently taking boxing lessons, and I think I might have to blame Terry Brooks. Yeah. I mean. Uh... But yeah. When the boxing gloves came out and he challenged that guy, I thought that it was going to be, like, instant victory. I thought he was just going to beat that guy's butt because he was, like, a, you know, scrawny, fast guy with boxing lessons. Yeah. But he got his shit stomped. <laughs> yeah. Like, earlier, I, I mentioned that that is probably my favorite part of the book when he's he's dealing with the nobles. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like that's the the moment where, like, we get Ben's ability to 
read a room to a degree, negotiate, debate. Mm-hmm. And it does have that like bit of, of the real world coming through with ultimately the, the boxing thing. And I thought it was cool that like he, you know, he wasn't automatically winning, certainly, because um, the noble whose name I can't recall off the top of my head. Callan. Cal- my, my brain immediately went to Charbronian, but I know that that's a yeah, person. That's not, we know. that's not his name. Cal- Caledon, Calibron. Yeah, something like that. Anyway, like he's he's this big muscled dude who probably knows his way around some medieval weaponry and everything, and so uh, Ben has the odds stacked against him. Calendbor. Yeah, right, Calendbor. <laughs> but but Ben's able to kind of handle him better than they expect for a bit because he's got this boxing training. I wish that scene had gotten to play out more fully, but it's interrupted by the paladin, which is, you know, the the magic solution that comes when you don't know that you need one right now. <laughs> so to piggyback off of, oh gosh, I finally said to piggyback off of, I'm a real podcaster. Yeah. I'm just going to take a moment to cringe. To bounce off of what you said about you know the instances where he's like reading a room and doing some sort of like you know verbal sparring there are so many scenes where that's happening and he's you know he's taking in what the other person is saying because you know ben goes around the kingdom trying to get different lords on his side failing at every turn but there's always a moment in these interactions and these discussions that he's having with them where I'm like, oh, shit, yeah, he's using his lawyer skills and he is going to verbally outmaneuver this guy. But he never does because there's always this magical problem the guy has yeah. that Ben can't maneuver around with his lawyer skills. And maybe maybe that's the point, like that, that the real world is just even, you know, if you're incredibly skilled in the real world, you're still a useless fop in this one. Because it's all magic and you need to learn how to control the magic. But I find magic boring. Yeah, it, it's it's weird. Because I think there are moments that are meant to make that point. Like, the entire misadventure with the crag trolls, I think, is pretty clearly meant to be a... This, this little episode is going to knock Ben on his ass and show him that even though he's done that research montage, he doesn't know yet how to deal with the people of this world right because he he clearly hopes that there's some negotiation that can happen or something like that but the trolls just like capture them i think that my favorite part of the book probably was that section after his research montage he finally gets you know that scene where you're a new monarch and people come knocking on your door with a problem. And those people that come knocking on his door are the Gahome Gnomes. The Gahome Gnomes are a just massively disliked people in Landover for a bunch of reasons valid and not. And this was also the part where I felt like it got a little too close to sort of like, I don't know, like potential real world racism tropes. And Terry Brooks himself says that he does basically slap a coat of paint over real world religious and social things. So I, I don't know if this was on purpose or not, but I feel like the go home realms were definitely sort of coded as a, a group of people who are sort of widely persecuted and disliked just because they spread out a lot and are kind of like unhygienic and look like ferrets. Yeah. But then they toss in, also they eat dogs, and I'm like, ooh, hmm. This this could hit a lot of different bad racial stereotype tropes here. Yeah, I hadn't really thought much about that particular... I guess so. I was too distracted by the fact that nobody seems to know what cannibal means in this world. Right. Oh my gosh, yeah, Abernathy keeps talking about them being cannibals. Yeah. And I think he just means they eat things like me because I'm a dog. Yeah. 
However, so even though I was sort of like inwardly like, ooh, I don't like this characterization here and I feel like this is racist to me and I can't really put my finger on it, it did lead to the only section of the book where I felt like he was trying to be kingly without a magical solution. He went and he, you know, so these gnomes, their problem was, was that they accidentally ate the pet of a crag troll. And so the crag trolls came and kidnapped all of their people. And so Ben goes to the crag troll land to try to free the rest of the gnomes. And things go to crap. And I thought that was kind of fun. Uh, I thought for a minute there that he was going to talk the trolls into like a diplomatic solution. But again, we got thrust into, no, the dungeon master here says the plot needs to go this way. So we're getting railroaded. (laughs) You know, that's actually kind of what this book felt like to me. I felt like I was in a video game where I desperately kind of want to like role play my way out of certain situations. But the video game has rails and needs to go a certain way. Okay, I gotta I gotta break in here for a sec. Can we can we replay the tape about half an hour ago or whatever when I was like about to say the thing about lawyering, I think, and then I thought of something else and I was like, no, I have to stay on the dragon. We're here. This felt like the setup for a video game to me. <laughs> the the time when it like pinged immediately to like wait, is this the setup for a video game? In particular, as soon as we got to the lands view, I was like, this is just, this is the thematic gloss for the in-game map. (laughs) Oh my god, you're right. And then, from there, because we're introduced to that relatively early, after we get to Sterling Silver in the first place. And and of course, Sterling Silver is in like total disrepair because there hasn't been a king. And it's, it's like magically in disrepair. So it couldn't it couldn't have been maintained. So then I was like, well, that's that's sort of a you know the way that you'll tell that you're progressing through the game is sterling silver will supposed to look better as you go. Mm. And then it launched into been visiting all the different factions in Landover, and it's like this now this is just Dragon Age. I've never played Dragon Age. More, multiple Dragon Age games are predicated essentially on. For a variety of plot reasons, your character has to visit these four or five different factions to, like, convince them to rally against the greater threat or or whatever the case mm-hmm. may be. And it, and it comes down to the whole thing that, of course, whenever you go one place, they're like, hi, we'd love to help you, but... We have this problem, and it's like, well, okay, I'm going to solve that problem for you, so you'll help me. Or, we don't want to help you, but if you do this thing we think is impossible, then we'll help you. Ha, ha, ha. And then you're like, well, okay, I'm the protagonist. I guess i got to go do... Anyway, like... Mm-hmm. And, and Dragon Age is not the only game, obviously, to, to, to do that. Although Dragon Age Inquisition does literally have you setting up in a castle and people coming before you with problems that you have to <laughs> help, help with. You saying that about the lands view, though, there, there were several, several times where I was like, use the lands view. He's all like, how are we going to find these captured gnomes? And I'm like, well, go visit the, the, the crag troll place with your lands view. Magical, magical mirror device thing. He doesn't do it. There are so many times when he could get important and necessary information before walking into a situation by going up to his attic. And looking at it in the magical portal, he doesn't do it. I don't understand. Yeah, ironically, many of the problems that had a magical solution that was already established, (laughs) nobody mentions. But yeah, a lot of these things, I was like, I was like, if, if, if we get to this recording and you tell me that Terry Brooks was a game designer at some point, I would be like, yep, that tracks. So we didn't hit a question that uh, I usually ask, but I feel like I already know the answer. What do you think you would have felt about this book if you read it when I read it at, let's just say, fourteen fifteen? I'm not confident I would have finished it. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. So here, here's, here's my ultimate feelings about this book. We talked... We've talked before, especially... 
when we did uh, the hero in the crown mm-hmm. about how I have never been and definitely like as a teen was not super into traditional medieval fantasy. Mm-hmm. And in the context of the hero in the crown, that was kind of a, you know, there this court intrigue and horse stuff is like stuff that I actively don't really care about. But there were some parts of that that book I also really, really dug, and it was super cool. This book doesn't have that second thing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I don't think my feelings about it would be very different from the way that I feel about it now, actually. Because ultimately what I felt like was that without without the element of been meaningfully utilizing the fact that he was from our world in some way without him doing some lawyering or using some skill or whatever you know then then the premise is kind of i don't want to say wasted but i think i mostly don't want to say wasted because i feel like it's mean and then it's down to well is the world he has to learn about interesting and for me it just isn't it's too by the numbers. So it just kind of, I came away from it feeling like it was just sort of one of the most pedestrian fantasy novels I can imagine. It had so much potential. Right. Again, the sequels to this, to, to the Landover stuff, I feel like that's where the good stuff is. Yeah. Because the stuff that I remembered being really excited about did not happen. And I'm like, oh, crap, I guess it was in the sequels. Because another spoiler alert, there's a whole section, I think maybe even an entire book, I can't say for sure, where Abernathy and Quester get stuck in the real world. Yeah, I was wondering if there was ever going to be that kind of thing as well. And that's way more interesting. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, I I didn't, knowing that it was a, a portal fantasy or an isekai, I I came in expecting that kind of thing. Also possibly expecting a more comedic tone. I think that's because I spent a lot of time just browsing bookstores as a kid. Like a lot. And it was always basically just the sci-fi fantasy section. And when you picked this book... Before I had gone to like buy it and start reading it, I realized that in my head I had kind of congealed this book, Piers Anthony's Xanth series, and Robert Asprin's Myth series into all the same thing in my head. Because, to be clear, I've read none of those. But because the last names are A's and B's and they have similar covers and those other two series have like very punny titles in the same sort of way that i guess magic kingdom for sale sold is not a punny title but it's kind of an offbeat like this is gonna be a weird thing title Mm -hmm. my brain put all of those things together into this imagined gestalt of like some kind of weird maybe like douglas adams adjacent fantasy thing based solely on seeing these book titles countless times for years in proximity on a shelf. Yeah, I definitely thought it was going to be totally different as well, because like I said, I couldn't remember very much about it. And I think that I went into this thinking that it was going to be more tonally adjacent to one of the other Terry's, Terry Pratchett, thinking that it was going to be just a bit more, you know, off kilter, weird... And I don't, I ultimately don't mind that the tone was different. I was kind of prepared for the comedic tone to fall flat because I tend not to be, I'm not a huge fan of like Douglas Adams to be, to be sure, for example. So uh, I, I, I read all of the Hitchhiker's Guide books in high school because it was required to be like in the cool crowd, which is to say the nerds in advanced English. But they weren't exactly things that I like derived a lot of enjoyment from. A lot of my friends were like much more genuine Douglas Adams fans, and I was kind of also there. When when it became clear that things were not, it wasn't a parody, right? Not that there isn't levity. Obviously, like Quester's entire shtick is half half comic relief in some ways, 
there were those times when whether it was waiting to see if Ben was going to apply his knowledge in, in a, you know, Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court sort of way, or <laughs> or when we like started to get into the what what the actual plot was with getting Landover in the catalog in the first place, and like we learned about who Meeks actually was and that he was working for this at the, in this book at least unseen prince character who didn't want to be saddled with being king and had escaped to the real world and was living off the money and and that meeks probably killed people who didn't stick with it mm-hmm. like all of that stuff i was like okay that's kind of neat i hope i see that go somewhere and the fact that it didn't was one of the factors that i was like oh that's obviously a later book and you also have the thing where, like, Strabo can move uh, between realms. But he says this really interesting thing. That he can't, he can't go to places where they don't believe dragons are real. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, not, it's not an offhand comment, but it's not one that Ben digs into much. But I was like, okay. So now I'm thinking about, like, the cosmology of this universe like does Strebo literally mean he can't go places where they don't believe dragons are real or does does he mean that he can't go places where dragons aren't real and he's just using the word believe as kind of a a little bit of a of a metaphor almost and and i was like i really want to see what happens now now that Strebo has placed in my head the notion that he could maybe travel to other worlds, but not ours necessarily. I'm kind of like, but okay, what if, like if enough people in our world were convinced dragons were real, like would he suddenly be able to be here? I kind of want to know. I want I want answers to these questions, and it's just not really we don't <laughs> we don't get those kind of answers. I I think there were a lot of setups that did interest me to see, but I feel like the payoffs for things that did pay off in this book were pretty i don't want to say predictable strictly but just very basic i guess as as fantasy goes to the point that like i'm not super convinced that the sequels would necessarily pay off things the way that i would like them to it sounds like they probably would maybe maybe i would find some benefit to to visiting them at some point if i ever feel up to it but like as it stands though I feel like this book is about one-third of a novel, but the length of a novel. <laughs> Here's what I want to know. Okay. <laughs> this, is a call, this is a call to our listeners mm, All right. for a piece of information. If you are, let, let's say, if you were born after 1995, maybe? <laughs> then they're probably not listening to us. Well, we're too old and too uncool for anyone born after 1995. I think we're exactly cool enough. But humor me, there's there's got to be one. If you were born like after 1995 and you've read this book, what did you think this catalog was? What did you think the purpose of this catalog was like in the real world? Setting aside the weird part of having a Magic Kingdom for sale in it. What do you imagine it's for? How does it work? How do people, how did we Where do you put inter- the debit interact? Card? Yeah. <laughs> I would I would love to know. You know, most most fantasy books can get away with not necessarily having things that like date them that hard, but this this one, because of that premise, is like, oh, there's this very specific thing that would not make sense anymore to people. Yeah. But I certainly remember like having catalogs that I would look through. He he said it was specifically a wish book, which I remember having the equivalent of at holidays and stuff. Yeah, I I can't I remember what brands. I feel like there was like a J.C. Penny one and a Sears yeah. one. Yeah, I feel like it was a lot of department stores mainly. So, 
those are the two big ones that I think were around in where I was growing up when I was young <laughs> enough that like we would have that annual ritual kind of 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 as the holidays approach we would maybe look at the in the wish book and my my mom would get me to point out the the thing that I wanted to ask Santa for in my letter to mm. Santa or whatever man the past the past is bizarre <laughs> we had to we had to pick up this honkin physical book full of photos of goods just to we couldn't even buy them that way that was just so, for us to know that they existed and then if we wanted them i guess i guess there were like order forms probably in it that you could rip out and mail or we might have to call or go to a store well this is like you know the scholastic fair catalog yeah then the store comes to you at a certain point yeah. sears did not set up a toy department in my house however <laughs> So, at a certain point in the book, when Ben Holiday is basically out of options, he goes to the spooky, spooky witch, and she convinces him to go to the fairy world to get a magical MacGuffin for her, and then she'll help him with his problems. Uh, when he goes into the fairy world, all of this magical fairy world chaos happens, and he sees all these bad visions of things in an attempt to get him to, like, abandon his mission. So, you, Brandon, what would your brain have shown you in the fairy world to get you to abandon your mission of ruling Landover? <laughs> or whatever better mission you have. It would probably just be, hey, Landover's full of giant spiders. You haven't met him yet. <laughs> and I'd be like, okay, I'm out. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just gonna go. I'll take my chances with Meeks trying to murder me so he can keep my million dollars. <laughs> It's not entirely a joke. I think that might actually... No, that's fair. I did say that, you know, or I do say, that I do think that Meek's murdering everyone that comes back failing as king closes a plot hole. I, I felt like it wasn't really a plot hole so much as I was sitting there like, why, why aren't these people coming back and telling everyone about this magical world that exists? Oh, because yeah. the wizard murders them. I get it. Okay. Yeah, that, that, that part was... I think that understanding that plot and the way that it unfolded in a couple stages and that was one of the areas where like quester was withholding significant information on purpose and it took it took us a ways into the book to get the whole story about how meeks probably kills them i thought that was really pretty good and kept me wanting to to know more about that and i wish that we had you know built up to dealing with that by the end of at the end of this book instead of fighting the mark peach time i don't know i've been thinking about how many peaches this gets i'm going to i think just be kind because i did enjoy it i was compelled and it made me remember good childhood feelings which i think is part of the joy of this podcast <laughs> yeah absolutely um, i'm gonna give it a 2.5 you're, you're absolutely allowed to say that the magic has held up to some degree it hasn't or entirely it hasn't yeah. held up the magic has not held up but the magic was able to be recalled yeah i i think this is like a one peach situation i've been I've been trying to figure out if I if I need to reserve one peach for like actively bad because I don't know that this I is think actively it's, I bad. I think it's fair, fair for one peach. Like, like it's it you know I I can imagine that eventually if we make this podcast for long enough I feel certain that we will find our way into something that is just an actively bad unpleasant book and this was fine it was just boring. <laughs> You know, to, to me, anyway. There were glimmers of a more interesting thing that just didn't go anywhere in this in this book. So I think I'm like at one. Right. It, it, one 
it definitely felt like one of the one of the longer slogs for me so far of this podcast. And that is why my next pick for you is very brief. But my next pick is not what we're doing next. What are we doing next? Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna see if I can break you up this book broke me. This book definitely would have been higher than like Lost on a Mountain in Maine if it were two hundred pages shorter. I'm sorry I'm throwing shade at a lot of your books right now. I hope I'm not just turning into all of your picks are awful. Some of None my of picks have been awful. awful. None of them Weirdly, I think you probably are most critical of one of the ones that I liked the most. Pet Cemetery. Pet Cemetery, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I actually That was because, like I said, I found myself judging it against some of Stephen King's other books. Right. Which, which I is adore. Fair. And I yeah, knew Yeah, I don't have that. I knew that Stephen King could do better. <laughs> I had the pleasant surprise of coming to an author I had never read who I expected to be long-winded because all of his books are so long and finding that I didn't feel like it was that, even though they are in a quantifiable sense very long. Mm. Next, we're going to do a book that is short, but will probably feel extremely long. Flatland, A Romance in Many Dimensions by Edwin Abbott Abbott. I've never heard of this. It's 96 pages long. Ooh cozy probably not gonna feel that but we'll see i i decided to uh to you know we've been we've been playing it safe with some you know straightforward fantasy and sci-fi and things of late uh, and, and a bit of like schoolroom comedy i just decided i've got to veer directly into the bizarre just straight in all right well my Dog Ate My Book Report is produced and edited by the hosts Ren and Brandon, each of whom can be found on Twitch as Picorito and Ren Out of Time, respectively. Actually, it's the other way around. Shit. Just look at the show notes, it's fine. The music used in this podcast was licensed by Epidemic Sound. Our icon image was illustrated by Cindy Lau. Have a question or comment for the team? You can find us on our website, which links to all of our socials, at dogatemybookreport.blueberry.net or by emailing at dogatemybookreport at gmail. We would be super excited to know what books you loved growing up. And if you have thoughts on the books that we are currently reading, by checking out our Discord. I have another question for the, the youths. Okay. Dear youths, what do you think Quester is doing in the sentence this is like during the boxing match <laughs> so so I'll give I'll give you a, uh, a thing that I think I think the word mouse in this sentence is referring to a bruise mm. um, in like boxing lingo but you this, what do you think Quester is doing in this sentence later High Lord Quester answered dabbing at a mouse already beginning to form under one eye I hate you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>